Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because they make being online easy. It's the thing that people do in this era. It's the thing that you can do for your writing, what you're selling, whatever you want to blog about or whatever your passion is, you can do it with Squarespace. They also make it easy with their 24-7 customer support, beautiful templates, and so many more features. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for today's show comes from NHTSA because here's something important. Everybody knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, but that still doesn't stop everyone. You could get arrested, you could incur huge legal expenses, and you could possibly even lose your job. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. Folks, this right here is not an ad. It is an announcement about this show, The Cracked Podcast. This is pretty new news that you may not know. We're going on our first ever tour this spring. We will have unique and custom-made live shows for these specific places, Lincoln Hall in Chicago, Illinois on Thursday, April 11th, and Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota on Friday, April 12th. Chicago, April 11th. St. Paul, April 12th. Those are the shows. Tickets are on sale now and linked in our footnotes. And I've wanted to be able to do this with the show for a long, long, long time. So there's a lot of excitement coming into this and coming in to see you in the upper Midwest, in my childhood region that I'm from. And I hope I'll see you out there in Chicagoland and or the Twin Cities. And now, on with this show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to read you my favorite thing I have ever read about your smartphone. When I say my favorite thing I've ever read about your smartphone, I don't mean like your warranty or something. I mean my favorite thing about the technological stage we are in that has led to its existence. Here's that quote. Precision had by now reached a degree of exactitude that would be of relevance and use only at the near atomic level and for devices that were now near universally electronic and that obeyed different rules and could perform tasks hitherto never even considered, end quote. That statement is a description of our era, and it comes from a book. That book is called The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. And it's an amazing book by author Simon Winchester, who, wouldn't you know it, is our guest today. If you don't know his writing uh, and many best-selling books, Mr. Winchester is one of my favorite nonfiction authors, and Simon has had a, an amazing life as a journalist and a professional petroleum geologist, we'll, we'll mention that a bit, and traveled the world for decades, all to, uh, to bring incredible true stories to life about how our world came into being. Everything from the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary to the eruption of Krakatoa changing the world to how you got that phone in your pocket. And as you'll hear today, his latest book explores a really interesting phenomenon, because think about it, your phone is made to a very specific set of dimensions. Everyone who has that model of iPhone or other brand, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head, everyone who has that model, it's made exactly the same way. We've all watched a keynote or read a thing that promises it will be exactly as precise as we want it to be. 
And that's a relatively new phenomenon in history. Only in the last 250 years or so has the world worked the way you think it works. And by that, I mean uh, objects are made to the sizes and specs you expect. Planes uh, exist, but also uh, have exactly perfectly put together parts and don't crash very often. All kinds of different things that most of us take for granted were made by a couple of very obsessed people. This episode is deep on history. It's deep on a lot of different concepts from especially the Industrial Revolution. There are tons of footnotes. If you are confused by anything that comes up, I'm sure you'll find exactly what you need there. And if you don't, you can uh, reach out to me on Twitter and maybe I'll maybe I'll be at a computer. I'll let you know. That'd be fun, right? I love history. It was a real treat to talk to Simon all about it and about how our world came together. Let's let you hear it. Please sit back. Or pull your phone open, look at the guts to see its transistors that are at a nearly atomic size, accomplishing the immense miracle of showing you web pages on the toilet. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with our very special guest, author Simon Winchester. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. And this book is incredible. It's called The Perfectionist, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. And it is uh, one of my favorite things about it is that it was a surprisingly personal story to you and your your life and background. Speak a little on just uh, how you got interested in this topic. Well, it was two things, really. I mean, first of all, my father um, was a precision engineer. I never really thought too much about it, but he made tiny electric motors for the guidance systems of torpedoes. So that was sort of always at the back of my mind. I remember one day, it must have been in about 1954, so I would have been 10, when he came in, my mother and I were just about to sit down for dinner, and he brought a box, a beautiful sort of wooden box with his name, B.A.W. Winchester Esquire, engraved on a sort of brass plate. He opened it up, put it on the dining room table, opened it up, and there were these beautiful jewel-like pieces of steel in sort of declining sizes from about a cube, about an inch cube, one slightly smaller, 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 till they became sort of tiny little billets of steel and then little feuilletons, little sort of wisps of steel. And each one had a number engraved on it. And he said these were called gauge blocks or Johansson blocks after the Swedish fellow that invented them. And he used them for... Um, calibrating his micrometers. Well, that was all fair and good, but he said what he really wanted to show me was that they had an extraordinary property. First of all, he wanted to demonstrate they weren't magnetic. To prove that they weren't magnetic, you push them towards each other and they neither repelled nor attracted each other. And once he had established that, he put the bigger one on the cloth and then the slightly smaller one on top of it and said to me, okay, young boy, pick up just the little smaller one. So I picked it up, and to my surprise, the bigger one came with it. And because I knew, to my surprise, because I knew they weren't magnetic. And he said, oh, come on, you can do better than that. Pick it up again. Just, I only want the small one. So I, somewhat frustrated, I picked up both, held the bigger one in my right hand, the smaller one in my left hand, and pulled all my little pathetic little muscles could pull. Couldn't get them apart. And he said, he took them away, I mean, not to embarrass me any further, said the way to remove them is to slide them. It's called ringing. You can get them apart that way, but the reason, this is why I wanted to show you, is that they are so perfectly flat. 
there are no little asperities that would cause air to leak in and make a point of weakness. They're perfectly flat and they've metal bonds together molecularly. And so for a few moments, the two pieces of metal magically become one. And that, he said, is true precision because someone somewhere ground these, polished them until they were perfectly perfectly flat. And that's something that remained in my mind for a long time, as yeah. did another thing when I went up to a Rolls-Royce factory where they made motor cars and saw a beautiful, sounds rather a contradiction in terms, but a beautiful crankshaft which had been handmade by a Rolls-Royce uh, engineer. And he was polishing it with chamois leather so that it gleamed in the lights. He mounted it between two bearings and started it spinning. And he said no one side of it because I've machined it so precisely, was heavier than another, so it wouldn't tend to slow down and would, in theory, except, of course, for friction, it would spin forever. So those yeah. two things remained in my mind until about six years ago and made me somewhat fertile ground, I suppose, when a fellow in Florida called Colin Povey, who I never heard of, wrote to me out of the blue and said, I've read all of your books and I like them, which is a very nice thing to be told, but I think you'd be the perfect person to write a book about precision, this invisible yet essential component of modern life, which is like the oxygen we breathe or the words we speak. We don't think about it, but you should go away and think about it and write a book. And so, because I was vaguely interested and because I had this weird background, why not? Absolutely. That Rolls-Royce part you talk about, it had to be made by a craftsman like that until, as, you, as your book shows, relatively recently. Uh, and it uh, almost starts in the year 1776. But more particularly on a specific day, May the 4th, Star Wars Day. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not my joke. But before we dig into these many amazing people who, who changed how everything works, the word precision, like when we're talking about precision engineering, the, the book picks out some very interesting things about just exactly what that word means. And it's very different from accuracy, which, which I kind of had no idea. Well, uh, and, and lazy people like me, including me, tend to use the words more or less interchangeably. But it's axiomatic that there are no synonyms in the English language. And these are two words which are in no way synonymous. And the, the way to distinguish between precision and accuracy is to think of a dartboard or a target at which you're firing an arrow or a gun or something. Your intention is obviously to hit the bull, to hit the thing in the middle. Yeah. If you hit it, then you have achieved great accuracy. Because accuracy is the degree to which you meet your intention with whatever you choose to do. Precision is very different. If you fire a gun or a dart or an arrow at this bull's, at this um, target, and you are all off the center, but let's say you hit at 10 o'clock on an outer ring, but every time you f fire it or draw your arrow, right. and it hits exactly the same place, time after time after time after time, that is precision. Precision is replicating your action, which if it's a happy coincidence, if it's in the center, then you've achieved precision and accuracy. But precision is, and it's important in the concept, which will come up later, I'm sure, in our discussion, of interchangeable parts making the same thing exactly the same time and time and time again. That's important and subtly different from accuracy. 
with this 1776 date we brought up, uh, Star Wars Day 1776, what was the first thing that uh, did this? And, and how did the process differ from basically all manufacturing prior to that point? It involved two people, one familiar to most, and that's James Watt, who was not the inventor, but the improver, if you like, of uh, the steam engine. It was actually invented a very crude steam engine by a man called Thomas Newcomen in Cornwall, but it had it was very inefficient, didn't work very well. But suddenly James Watt had an idea for making a steam engine with, and I don't want to get too technical here, with two cylinders, and that would achieve what people have been dreaming of for a long time, extracting work from the simple fact that if you take an amount of water and heat it to 100 degrees Celsius, suddenly it expands into a gas 1,700 times the volume of this water. And you can, it, oh. you'd have to be foolish not to think we can get that sudden expansion into steam to make it work for us. All we have to do yeah. is heat the water, and it, surely you should be able to it to drive something. That's amazing, even just knowing the, the numbers behind boiling. I, I know the temperature, but the amount it expands. Oh, the amount, well, it's actually wow. 1,740. That's right. the difference. So um, what came up with this idea, or improved the idea, of turning this into a machine that would, would do work? The only problem was he didn't know how to make cylinders properly. The way you would make a cylinder back in 1775 was you take a sheet of iron, you'd hammer it and hammer it and hammer it until it curved and went round, joined itself, you'd weld it together, turn it on its side, lower the piston into it, and the piston would rattle around like a sort of pee on a drum. And if you fired it up, steam would leak everywhere. Right. Nonetheless, they did some work and... The fact that they did some work, these early steam engines, <coughs> attracted the attention of a man who worked about 70 miles away in North Wales, who was called John Wilkinson. And John Wilkinson made things out of iron. He was a bit of a lunatic, to be perfectly honest. He had <laughs> iron on his property in North Wales. He smelted it, he puddled it, he hammered it, he forged it, he tempered it. And he made things. He made desks and tables and chairs. He made an iron boat. He made an iron coffin, would you believe, which he, and this is obviously before the Me Too movement, he would lie fully dressed, I believe, in it whenever he heard that a comely young woman was coming up to his workshop. And the moment she arrived, he would spring out of it. You know, Jolly Jape's really funny, but obviously oh, 18th yeah. century humour is rather different from our own. But he ultimately died and is buried in that coffin and under an <laughs> iron obelisk. So not for nothing was he called John Iron Mad Wilkinson. And his business, he had a contract with the Royal Navy to produce cannons. And the way he produced cannons was deceptively simple. He would get a block of iron about the length of a cannon uh -huh. and put it on its side. And he would have a drill, very stable, mounted such that the drill was drilling into the flat end of the piece of iron. And he would dr push it forward and drill a hole that was more or less straight and would be the right length of a cannon and significantly its diameter would be more or less unchanging the length of the of the cylinder and he got a contract to produce these things which were guns for the royal navy he was tired and his workers were tired of doing this by hand and he heard of this man james watt 70 miles away who was making steam engines maybe we could hook one of his engines up to 
this drilling device that he had invented. So he did whatever the 18th century equivalent of ringing up James Watt, said, could you sell me right. a steam engine? I assume so he used Watt, a solid iron phone or something like that. Very, so, very yeah. iron phone, you know, smoke, <laughs> sm smoke signals, I suppose, something like that. Anyway, got the message and, and what? These engines were gigantic. I mean, the cylinders three and four feet across, pistons three feet across, flywheels 12 feet across, made, weighed tons. He put all the component parts into presumably a horse-drawn wagon and clip-clopped over the West Midlands into the mountains of Wales and arrived and constructed this thing, put in the water, put in the coal, fired it up, chuff, 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 chuff. Steam went everywhere. And Wilkinson said, well, you know, thank you, this is great, but you just don't know how to make cylinders properly. I can make a cylinder for you. How big do you want it to be? And Watt says, Scotsman, he said, oh, well, I'll make it three feet in diameter, that'd be lovely. He said, <laughs> I can probably do that. So he got a very big piece of iron and another very big drill, and he put the drill on an absolutely flat surface, which goes back to the essential component, things that are flat are important, yeah. and moved this drill forward by hand, and it took about a week. But he produced in the end a cylinder, maybe five feet long, turned it on its end, lowered the piston into it, and it fit like a hand in a glove. And Watt put all the component parts together, the flywheel and the governor and the gearing and the boiler and the fire, lit the fire, chuff, 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 no <laughs> steam, and suddenly you have a working steam engine, which immediately Wilkinson attached to the drill and he can make a new cylinder or a new cannon for the Navy in about 20 minutes. And wow. it was a transformative moment. It was the first machine made for what would soon call, be called the Industrial Revolution. It was the beginning, the birthday of the modern world. And so excited was Wilkinson. He said to what? I'll order 500 more. 500, a huge order. Yeah kept both men busy for years, but these machines were sold and bought all over the country and suddenly they went to cities like London, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, and of course were exported and formed the basis of manufacturing of factories, which would turn out it for everything, ultimately motor cars and all the rest of it. But this was the true beginning and it had all sorts of effects, many of them social, but made a lot of people very wealthy. So the, yeah. we know the date of the revolution and we know the two men that were central to its beginning. And, and it seems like in addition to developing precision engineering, I almost feel like they invented branding to an extent, right? Like they were they were people who said, who had a product that was just better than everyone else's. It, it, it makes me wonder, like it must have been much harder to be a consumer before precision engineering, before manufacturing, because other than just getting to know a craftsman really well, how did you know what you were buying? How did you know that you were getting the right thing for what you needed? Well, I mean, there are all sorts of, I, I can answer that in all sorts of ways. Let me give you an example oh, please. from this country, yeah. which go, goes to the um, <clears throat> the making of guns, for instance. Sure, yeah. Um, okay, you've got a gun, which in those days was a flintlock. So it had a, a flintlock had about 10 parts, the trigger, the frizzle, the pan, all sorts of things, which struck a spark from a piece of flint and ignited the powder, which propelled a projectile 
down a barrel. Now, prior to about 1800, all of those things were made by hand, such that if a soldier in battle, his um, trigger broke, they'd have to give him, find him, get a gunsmith to make an entirely new gun. Right. But a very clever Frenchman called Honoré Blanc, yet another person we've never heard of, uh, said, if I make every part of a flintlock exactly the same, this goes back to interchangeable parts, you yes. break a trigger, you pick up another trigger, and it'll fit with exactly the same as the trigger that's just broken. The making of guns was transformed by this simple discovery in France, transmitted to America, I might say, by no less a person than Thomas Jefferson, who saw a demonstration of this in Paris and wrote a letter to Washington saying, chaps, you know, you ought to know about this. But the thing that interested me was not so much the firing mechanism of the gun or a machine which turned out lots and lots of barrels, yeah. but the making of the wooden stock, the thing that you put against your shoulder so that you could fire the gun with a, some degree of accuracy therefore <laughs> there to it kill is. your enemy if you get if you achieve your intention he's dead but you're accurate um, <laughs> up to that point once again all stocks were made by hand but there was this wonderful fellow called Thomas Blanchard who lives in lived in western Massachusetts near where I have come down from today where I have a farm he did something very re revolutionary he made lasts for shoes. He made wooden lasts for shoes because in the early 18th century and all the years prior to that, if you bought a shoe, you went to a shoe shop, you would be confronted by a big basket full of hundreds of shoes of all different sizes and shapes. And you put one on until oh. it fit. And then you put another one on. And with any luck, you had it too comfortable, well-fitting shoes. So there wasn't even pairing? Like they didn't tie the no, laces no, no. of well, a pair Well, they're together? not, no. Well, oh, no. Yes. Maybe there was pairing. But there you were There was very guessing. little variety in design, so it didn't really matter if they weren't paired. Oh, I mean, initially, the concept of left and right feet didn't occur to anybody. They were both the same size, of the same shape. Oh. But it was this man, Blanchard, who introduced the concept of making wooden shapes of different shapes, in other words, a left and a right, and of different sizes. So the, using, you'd have a last size five, last size seven, last size nine. You would ultimately know what your size was, and you'd yeah. order according to your size. Well, the United States government, they had a gun-making factory in Springfield, Massachusetts, and they have adopted the French process of making the flintlock, another process for making lots and lots of barrels, and they thought, well, if this man can churn out very precisely made shoe lasts, he should be able to change his machine to make, if I give him, give him lots and lots of pieces of wood, lots of lasts, lots of stocks for oh, guns. Right. And so he did. So he took his machine over to the armory, Springfield Armory, and it had knives and things and pantographs, and you had an iron model of a stock, and the machine would make the blades follow the contour of the iron and translate it onto wood, cut the wood exactly using the template, the, the model that was made of iron. And so all of a sudden, they produced hundreds and hundreds of stocks, from which, of course, we have the phrase lock, stock, and barrel. 
Oh, all yeah. three parts, exactly. It's an industrial term. All three term. parts of a gun were made in the early part of the Industrial Revolution, and they were made exactly the same with a great degree of precision. Guy Ritchie owes them a royalty, I feel. He should I uh, believe, yes, pay out. He absolutely does. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Yes. <laughs> well, especially this this whole process is so... Uh, it, it's happening in a lot of different countries in the book, this, this move toward more and more precision, but in particular in Britain and the United States. And yeah. with the, the gun element, you tell an amazing story where I think a lot of a lot of people know that in the War of 1812, there was a successful British operation to take Washington, D.C. and burn down the White House and sort of pillage the place. And you pick out a sort of a last battle before that called the Battle of Bladensburg, where, where American soldiers essentially didn't have good enough guns with replaceable enough parts. And the possibility that if they had had that, the White House has never burned, that big moment in history goes completely differently. It's incredible. Well, yes, I'm not sure. I think the British soldiers were generally better, but then I would say that, would I not? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But they also, if you remember, burned down the Library of Congress, which had 3,000 books in it. So it was a a tragedy, but they were mercifully replaceable. (laughs) <laughs> between that and also uh there's so much here about the making of cannons and pulley blocks that essentially made the british navy able to do what it did in especially the 1800s how much of this history in this time should we be framing as one country had better engineering than the other country and that's why history went that way well i think the americans particularly took the whole concept of mass manufacturing Uh, and ran with it. So although we, the British, or we, the Europeans, if I can put it like that, and I should say parenthetically, I am an American now because I got sworn in on the afterdeck of the USS Constitution, I might say. So former life as a Brit and a European. Yes, to us goes the laurels, if you like, of making, of inventing the whole concept of precision. But it was the Americans who really took it to heart and started building things and turned into the great industrial juggernaut that has been the essentially since the beginning of the uh, the 19th century. And I suppose that there's an interesting bifurcation, if you like, in the way that precision operates, quite nicely illustrated in the motor car industry by yes. two men called Henry, both born in 1863, didn't know each other initially, and they had transformative effects on the automobile industry. And one of them was Henry Royce in Manchester in England, and one was Henry Ford in Dearborn in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Both of these men were captivated by the, their ownership because they were sort of nerdy, sort of fascinated people by mechanical things. They both had what were called de Dion quadricycles, which were made in France. And they were essentially two bicycles side by side with a sort of metal frame connecting them, and mounted on it was a 10-horsepower motor, which would drive this thing crazily, noisily, unsafely, with no brakes, no horn, no nothing. But these two men, independent of each other, got on these things, raced around and said, my God, this is the best thing since, I was going to say since sliced bread. I don't think sliced bread was invented in 1863. But anyway, (laughs) uh, but they, they had two very different attitudes. Henry Royce said, I am going to make this, this noisy, dirty, smelly, unsafe thing 
into the most majestic, beautiful automobile that's ever been made. Henry Ford, by contrast, said, I live in a beautiful country from Cape Cod in the east, the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, the California coast. I want everyone to be able to see this land of mine and see it inexpensively. I'm going to make a motor car which will be available to everyone. And so by wonderful coincidence, a happy coincidence for me of writing the book, two cars that enjoyed the, almost exactly the same lifespan from 1907 to 1923 illustrate the point I'm trying to make. 1907 to 1923, the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, mm -hmm. unarguably the finest handmade motor car ever created. Also from 1907 to 1923, the Ford Model T, the Tin Lizzie. Right. They made 8,000 8, Rolls-Royce Silver Ghosts, all of them by hand. They made 16 million Model <laughs> Ts. All of, or nearly all of the Rolls-Royces still exist in running order today, because they were so impeccably made. It's amazing. Almost all the Model Ts have ended up on scrap heaps, but they did the job that Henry Ford wanted. But the important distinction is, you would think, would you not, that the Rolls-Royce was the more precise machine. Right. But in fact, it wasn't, because it was all made by hand, and if two pieces, perchance, didn't fit properly, then the man that was making them would simply file the piece down until it did fit. The converse was true in Dearborn, the production line for the Model T. All the parts, whether they were for carburetors or brake linings or transmission or steering gear, were in hoppers above the production line. And they, in theory, each piece should have been identical to its brothers and sisters. They should be interchangeable parts. If, however, one wasn't, and it dropped down the hopper, to go into the production line, which was moving steadily underneath, and it didn't fit, then the production line would suddenly grind to a halt. The machines would jam, as it were. Yeah. The workers would simply sit around smoking and costing everyone thousands of dollars until you <laughs> found the errant part, took it out, put in a replacement, and started things moving. So precision, it now we now realize, was not important for the making of what you think of as the most precise car because it was made by hand. But it was absolutely crucial to making inexpensive, mass-market things, making a lot of them, and very quickly. And that was yeah. a realization uh, that allowed Ford to change the world of manufacturing. For sure. I, well, and I, because I think our listeners, they, they may have some kind of vague concept of that Ford assembly line, but they should know about what your book describes with that Rolls-Royce process of hand making a car where it's they draw a chalk outline on the floor and then basically a group of people all assemble it almost like sculptors it's it's completely amazing that those two processes could be happening at like you say the, the same time in history it is extraordinary and uh, i'm not sure i think they did meet sadly henry royce and of course the the name Rolls-Royce, a lot of Rolls-Royce engineers think that to this day the car should be called a Royce Rolls rather than a Rolls-Royce. <laughs> Henry Rolls, or Charles Rolls, I mean, was simply a, a marketing man. He was a very smooth um, Mayfair in, in London, wealthy salesman, really. 
And uh, he partnered up, and, and Henry Royce was very reluctant, and eventually they did strike a deal. And the deal was that the car should be called a Rolls-Royce. But to this day, I mean, although things have changed now and Rolls-Royce fell on hard times and belongs now to Volkswagen, every time a car comes off the production line, and of course they do have production lines now, though they move very, very slowly, they oh. say the car that has just come off, you don't say, oh, there goes another Rolls. You say, there goes another Royce. So yeah. homage to the man who himself was killed in an air crash in a Wright Flyer, one of the Orville Wright early aeroplanes. He had something like license number six, and he crashed it <laughs> into a mountainside. So he went That's you know, incredible. ever pushing, pushing the envelope technologically. He was a wonderful man. Many, many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for helping us bring you this episode of the Cracked Podcast, the one you're listening to. And they want to set you up with much, much more than an episode of our podcast. So much more than an episode of our podcast. They want to set you up with a website. They want to help you build something that shows off you to the whole world because the whole world uses the internet. That might sound obvious and intuitive, but it's only because the internet is that universal. Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Their powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. They make buying domains very easy. I could go on and on. I just think they are the perfect partner to help you build a website that you're excited about for yourself or your business or anything else. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. Support for today's show comes from ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers healthy, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork. That's right, all of those things. You can choose from a variety of curated boxes or customize your own box to get exactly what you and your family love. It's all delivered right to your doorstep in individual vacuum-packed biodegradable packaging. Each box comes with at least 9 to 11 pounds of meat. That's enough for 24 individual-sized meals in one shipment. It's just taken care of, very convenient. You can choose exactly how frequently you want to get it. And it all comes with the peace of mind of knowing that butcher box meats come from humanely raised open pasture animals that are never fed antibiotics, hormones, or fatty fillers. And I could tell you about the easy website, you know, or the, the delivery being very simple. It's just very, very tasty meats. Their steaks and their pork chops, in particular, when I've had them, I just kind of made them, you know, like a little bit of salt and pepper and so on. But you can just cook it, enjoy it. It is straight up delicious. I also did some fancy chicken stuff. I, I had a lot of pots going all at once. It was really great. Also, just the bacon that they do. Hey, we haven't even talked about bacon but that's something that you can set yourself up with. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you use the internet, but the internet loves bacon and they are correct because it's delicious. And ButcherBox has very, very excellent quality bacon and every other kind of meat they do. So for free bacon, what a deal. And $20 off your first box. Even more of a deal. Go to butcherbox.com cracked and enter cracked, the word cracked. That is butcherbox.com slash cracked and enter cracked for free bacon and $20 off your first box. Folks, just one thing to repeat from the top of the show and from previous announcements. I just love telling people that the Cracked Podcast is going on its first ever tour. 
April 11th in Chicago, April 12th in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ticket links are in the footnotes, and I really hope you'll join us on that whole Midwest adventure. Thanks. In terms of these overall processes uh, with the making of guns in France, I believe there was a part of the story where Honor Blanc and Jean-Baptiste Vaquette de Gribeval, who was also working on it, but at one point they faced opposition in France due to uh, sort of the, the craftsmen making guns, feeling like they were going to lose their jobs. How much has this sort of increased engineering eliminated jobs or created jobs or, or kind of both? Well, in the early days, it had all sorts of deleterious social effects. I mean, the classic example, I'm not going to bring the Luddites into it, that was to do with the mechanization of the frames that were used for the mechanical construction of socks and stockings. Yeah. So these were the frame breakers. Um, and they, yeah, they famously destroyed them, and then I think there were strict laws against it. Very strict, and indeed people were executed. I'm afraid breaking wow. was a capital offense, you know. Wow, wow. So um, a good example of, of, of this was, once again, by going back to the Navy. Navy had sailing ships, of course, in the 19th century in the early part. And one of the components that they needed in vast numbers were pulley blocks. You'll remember them from school, you know, a simple pulley block with one wheel or massive oh. ones with six or ten wheels that would give a sailor pulling on these things, enormous mechanical advantage. And he could very slowly raise a sail, let's say, that would weigh several tons and one man could do it. They needed the Royal Navy about 130,000 pulley blocks a year. And they were made wow. out of elm tree with a bit of ash wood and lignum vitae inside it by craftsmen. Along came the man Henry Maudsley. And Maudsley is the man who invented the whole concept of mechanical flatness, the thing that obsessed me from day one. Yeah. But he made a lot of other things. And one thing he was interested in, once the steam engine was up and running, he went to the Navy and said, OK, you need pulley blocks. How many steps does it take? Break it down. The number of processes turning an elm tree into a bunch of pulley blocks. Mm -hmm. And the Navy went away and said, OK, well, first of all, you have to slice the elm tree into bits of wood. Then you have to smooth the edges and chamfer it and get it approximately the right size. Then you have to drill holes in it, and then you've got to put slots in it. Dot, 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 dot. 43 separate processes. All right, said Maudsley. If you'll give me a contract, I will make 43 great big iron machines, all of them with equipped with either drills or blades or all sorts of things, which will enable me to do everything industrially. We'll power them with one big James Watt steam engine. So the Navy said yes. So they built him a factory in Portsmouth, about an hour south of London, called the Portsmouth Block Mills. And his 43 gigantic machines were placed there. And once the steam engine was connected, exactly what he predicted came true. You had a hopper at one end and you fed in elm trees. And wow. out of the other end came finished pulley blocks. At a stroke, this meant that the 200 or 300 carpenters that were working in cottage industries all over South England, making these things by hand, all of a sudden had no work. The only employment that this factory offered was for eight or 10 unskilled men with oil cans and wads of cotton waste who would lubricate the machines and lubricate them 
Well, they obviously did, because the machines were still operating. The block mill opened in 1800, still operating in 1965. Yeah, that's so incredible. the longevity is incredible. Beautifully made machines. I mean, Henry Maudsley was a great, great early engineer, completely forgotten, but I try and see that in this book he's not forgotten. There's also so many of these very specific people with seeming obsessions at making this precision as as much of a thing as it can be. And then also there's a, a story in here about a name that I knew from American history, which is Eli Whitney. And I'm curious how often this kind of thing happened because he, it turns out, did not just develop the cotton gin, which is the one test question we get in history class, but he also was a fraud. He defrauded the U.S. government. <laughs> he did indeed. And, and to the engineering community, he is regarded as a charlatan and a fraud. It all goes back to Honoré Blanc and making um, mass production of, of rifles. He had, was short of money because he never patented the cotton gin. He desperately needed work. He heard that the US government was announcing a competitive bid for, can you make flintlocks en masse? And he said, yes, I can. And a major demonstration was laid on in the other, the, the main armory was in Springfield, Massachusetts, but there was one in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And that was the location of this one. So he said, I will demonstrate how I can, and he cheated. It'd be too technical <laughs> to tell you how he cheated, but he bamboozled all these great people, including oddly enough, Jefferson, who came again, he was now president. Yeah, and had seen the real version. Had yeah. seen the real version, <laughs> but he couldn't distinguish between the real and the fake version. And so they gave him the contract for 8,000 guns, which he desperately needed the money, paid him up front. He delivered the guns five or 10 years late, and none of them worked because yeah. he was a complete phony. So his reputation as a great hero, I'm afraid in this book, I somewhat uh, puncture that balloon. It's worth knowing. Yeah. Well, and, and especially in these early days of precision engineering, I feel like was he a real outlier in terms of people trying to be frauds about this? Or I feel like this would have happened a lot where people said, oh, yeah, this brand new technology, I'm an expert at it. And then uh, I believe Whitney just hired people to hand make the guns like they'd always been made. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly right. And he pretended. I mean, how either they pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, I'm not sure. But people were very unfamiliar with the technology and they've sort of said, oh, I suppose so. But I mean, mistakes like this pepper this book. And I think the uh, the classic one from more modern times, it was not uh, deliberate, it was an accident, but a very, very costly accident, was the mismachining, the mispolishing of the mirror for the Hubble telescope, yes. which was made by a company in Danbury, Connecticut, not far from where I live. And it was polished scrupulously by a bunch of people. It took several, many, many months, if not more than a year to polish this huge piece of corning glass. And it turns out when it went up into space, I mean, you probably are too young to remember this, but I remember the day watching this horrible press conference when NASA had to admit that it was like having sent Mr. Magoo up into space. Because the thing, <laughs> all the images that came back of stars were completely blurry. I mean, there it was because the machining or the polishing of this mirror had been miscalculated by one fiftieth of the diameter of a human hair. One, a very, one over very, 50. 
one of, of a human hair. I don't have too much, but um, <laughs> so, uh, but very cleverly, and it shows. I mean, I'm a great, great fan of NASA, not least, of course, because of the landing on Mars the other day. Yes, but they there was this wonderful moment. They were thinking, how do we correct the optics? There was this, basically, if you can think of Hubble as an enormous tube with the optics at one end. I mean, rather like a conventional telescope and all sorts of electronic packages grouped around it. You needed to somehow get inside the tube, but it was too narrow for one man with his oxygen pack and all his tools that he would be needed to get into it. And one American engineer was having a shower in Munich one day. There was a big conference of the European Space Agency because they were partners with the Americans in the building of the Hubble. And you may remember in some showers, maybe yours at home, you have a steel bar with a clamp which holds the shower head, which you right. undo the thing and raise it or lower it. And then there's another clamp and you adjust the angle of the shower head. And he said, we can mount the optics on something like that and insert a long rod into the middle of the tube instead of inserting a human being and then electronically manipulate things and repair it, essentially give it contact lenses. <laughs> so three right. years later, after the shuttle Challenger disaster, when they had restarted the shuttle, the shuttle program, they sent up one of these devices just modeled on the shower in Munich and repaired it. And the engineers who three years previously had looked with glum astonishment at their monitors showing everything totally fuzzy, what they right. call first light is when they switch it on this time everything was brilliantly focused. And the Hubble, <laughs> inarguably, is the greatest scientific experiment of modern times. It's orbiting a couple of hundred miles above the surface of the Earth, radiating the most extraordinarily beautiful pictures of the cosmos. Yeah. But excitingly, the next generation is a huge, much bigger telescope called the James Webb Telescope, which I was going to put in this book, except a horrible, horrible accident befell it as it was being assembled in the Northrop Grumman factory in Long Beach. Oh. And uh, basically, one of the heat shields made of sort of mylar ripped when they were extending it. And so it won't be launched now until 2020. It's going to be launched from Kourou in uh, French Guiana. $10 billion dollars worth of telescope. And I just pray that it works. If I remember right, Hubble, the book said it cost about $2 billion, and, the, and so this new one is 10 and yeah. that's, that's a multi-year delay just from that one oh, tear of yeah. that one miler. Well, there have been other delays. I think it was oh, originally, and it nearly was killed by, you know, there are enemies in Congress, not least this um, man who is not a rocket scientist, the senator <laughs> from Oklahoma, Mr. Inhofe, who you know, believes that the Earth oh. is 4,000 years old, and I hope he's not a great friend of yours, but there are a number of very primitive minds in Congress, and many of them are not in favor of spending so much money on the James Webb Telescope. Senator James Inhofe, if I remember right, he is the guy who there was some kind of bill on the floor about doing something about climate change, oh. and he, he threw a snowball in Congress that he had found yeah. from outside to prove that how could there be climate change because it snowed yes. once. It's snowing, yeah, right. Yeah. I feel like our consumer technology, not only is it more of a thing than ever before, but also the 
process of developing it is followed very closely. Like I, I will see people on Twitter or online watch every Apple keynote breathlessly. Like, oh, what's going to be the the latest very fine-tuned change to the camera or the battery or, or how many transistors it has? Is this kind of engineering more public than it's ever been? More More in front of us as people than ever before? I think it is, although so many of the interviews I conducted for this book when I'm talking to the sort of leading edge, bleeding edge people, they're saying, well, of course, on the dark side, they're doing this. And I said, wait a minute, what do you mean the dark side? I can't talk about that. The Defense Department. In almost oh. every area of research in the world of ultra, ultra precision, a lot of these people have got security clearance, and so they know what's going on, huh. but they won't talk about it. So, you know, you look at the... Um, you know, these agencies that we don't talk a lot about, you know, DARPA, the Defense Research, the, you know, the, I forget yeah. all their acronyms now, but there are a lot of them. Yes, the kind of research that goes into the making of the chip in an iPhone 8, for instance, which is all I've got at the moment, that is being done at places like Intel, the yeah. design of these chips is commercially very, very secret. And the firms that actually make it possible for Intel and company to make the chips, we don't know about them. I mean, the, 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 the leading company in the world is a Dutch company called ASML, which right. makes these gigantic things called photolithography machines, which need several jumbo jets to bring them over to these, what are called the fabs, the fabrication plants where these chips are made. And these machines are $110 million each, and they allow wow. people to design and make these tiny little integrated circuits, like the one in this iPhone here. It's the size of my pinky fingernail. It's called an A11 chip, and it has 4.3 billion transistors in it, not million, but billion. You've got to bear in mind that the first ever transistor made in 1948 in New Jersey, was mm -hmm. about the size of my fist. Now, every single iPhone, 4.3 billion, they make 13 quintillion every day. And the statistic that is put out by people like Intel is that there are now more working transistors in the world than there are leaves on all the trees in <laughs> all the world, which is an unbelievable number. I mean, I drive back and forth on the Massachusetts Turnpike from oh, Boston to the home of I the leaves. In, in the, yeah. The home of the leaves. It's all <laughs> leaves. And I think it is impossible <laughs> to imagine there are more transistors than the leaves I can just, you know, see by this gas station. Well, yeah, there yeah, are, yeah. and they're so tiny. And you think, are we reaching sort of the limits of our ability to make things? Which yeah. is a sort of humbling thought and brings me in this book to sort of revisit the question of, is precision entirely a good thing? Is our attitude to precision good? Are we perhaps worshipping it, fetishizing it, saying if it's ultra precise, it must be ultra good? Or are we leaving beside in the dust what I still revere and what you opened this conversation with, the idea of craftsmanship? People making things which aren't necessarily precise don't allow you to tell the time to six places of decimals. The mechanical clocks in my house, for instance, that I wind every Sunday, 
They're all old, they're all beautiful, they're all imprecise because they're handmade. And I just remember there's a wonderful line in a detective story writer's book. She was called Dorothy L. Sayers. And it's called, the book is called Gordy Night. And she talks about walking through Oxford late at night and listening to the college bells striking midnight in, as she says, striking midnight in friendly disagreement. I like the <laughs> idea that clocks should strike in friendly disagreement because they've put, or we have put, in a town like Oxford, precision in its place. Yes, it's good for some things, but it shouldn't utterly dominate our lives. In 1776, that first steam engine cylinder, it was machined to be the size within one-tenth of an inch that they were going for. That was the precision they had. And then these chips, as you mentioned, now they're at a point where, to to go back to one thing, the number of transistors in the world, 15 quintillion transistors. A a day. Per day. Per day, yes. And a quintillion, yes. uh, as I understand it, is a one followed by 18 zeros. That's right. si- the size of the number. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll just write that down in the footnotes of the show so you can see <laughs> right. it, uh, folks, and understand it. But we, we've gone from being able to do, oh, it's within a tenth of an inch of what we want, to in barely more than 200 years, now there are quintillions of transistors made to a molecular size of, of exactly. accuracy. The first thing ever made, precisely, was a cylinder. The most precise mechanical thing made today is also, by chance, by coincidence, a cylinder. Yeah. There are four of them. The first one was a cannon, correct? That uh, that cannon made by Wilkinson. Well, uh, but it was a cylinder made f- oh, along the lines engine. of a cannon by a cannon maker. Yeah. It was a cylinder for his steam engine. The cylinders that I'm talking about now are not made of iron, they're not made of copper or anything like that. They're made of fused silica. And there are four of them, two in Hanford in Washington State and two in Livingston, Louisiana, where they form the beating heart of these two devices known by their acronym LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories. These two American financed observatories, which were set up to detect the passage of gravitational waves through the universe after the spectacular, very distant thing like the collision of two black holes, wow. which should make the planet, our planet, change its shape very slightly. And these things have detected five gravitational waves in the last three years. So they clearly exist. Einstein, who predicted them, was right. But these mirrors have to be so flat, so perfect, that they can detect a change in length of one ten-thousandth of the diameter of a proton. And a proton is one femtometer, which is 10 to the minus 15. Add another four (laughs) zeros for a ten-thousandth, 10 to the minus 19. So it was 10 to the minus 1 in Wilkinson and Watt's time, 10 to the minus 19 today. So we've come a long way. That has to be the peak of precision, right? Like, how, how can anything get more precise to the point of being past those femtometers to detect gravitational waves that I guess we'll start to see Einstein as smart for predicting? Uh, like, it's, I think it's, Einstein will be regarded as a clever fellow, yes. Yeah, but is there any more precision we can achieve? There's got to be some kind of molecular atomic limit to it. 
Yes, and I, the, I, this is how I sort of end, end the book. I mean, I talk about the near disaster when a Rolls-Royce Trent 900 engine blew up on a um, Qantas aircraft going between Singapore and uh, yeah. Sydney in 2010. It, it was also interesting to learn that Rolls-Royce makes uh, plane engines. I just didn't even know that. Yeah. It does. I mean, it's the fierce competition with Pratt & Whitney and General Electric in this country. They do, and they're very, very successful. But someone in a factory in a town called Hucknall in the north of England mismachined a tiny tube, a hundredth of a millimeter, too thin, and the wall of this tube, wow. as big as a drinking straw, one hundredth of one millimeter. Yeah, it's a tiny amount. <laughs> Are we reaching the limits, as you mentioned just now, of our ability to machine things? Because when we considered before, maybe people are losing their jobs to some elements of this push for precision. It also seems like in that plane engine case, and and for people who don't know, it was a Qantas flight thirty two in twenty ten where the it flew out of uh, Singapore, the engine exploded, they barely got the plane back to the ground, barely put out any fuel or fires, and barely didn't uh, explode the entire thing and, and lose everyone. If if all of that can happen because a human is one one-hundredth of a millimeter off, like maybe maybe precision is creating jobs that no one would want. I wouldn't I wouldn't want a job where I have that margin of error. That, that seems terrible. Exactly. And also creating potential problems. So yeah. I think taking stock is what this is all about. Saying how good is it for us truly. The story in the toward the end of the book of the Seiko watch company, that that's such a perfect example of to me, like like finding a balance between the two. It is. I mean, uh, Seiko invented the quartz watch. They never patented it. They said the whole world can have it. A watch with no moving parts because it's just, it's the oscillation of a quartz crystal under an excitic, you know, the excitation offered by an electric current passed across it. You can tell the time with a Seiko quartz watch to a thousandth of a second. And they right. make, there's a production line, they have a factory in a place called Morioka in northern Japan, where I went to. You go up to the second floor and there is this production line, all robotic, turning out thousands upon thousands of these every single day. And then you go and keep on the same floor and you go through a set of double doors. And then there's a sort of cathedral-like quiet. And in it are working 20 or 30 middle-aged men and women, each one sitting at a big sort of carol, a big desk, with magnifying glasses and tweezers and little tools and in intense illumination. And they are making by hand mechanical watches with hair springs and mainsprings and things that already seem very old fashioned and inefficient. And indeed the watches they make, they're called Grand Seiko. They sell very few in this country, are accurate not to a thousandth of a second, but you have to wind them every week, and they maybe lose or gain five seconds a day. But oh. to people like me, so what? Do we really need to tell the time? I suppose if you're an arbitrageur in Wall Street, you do need <laughs> to know. But I'm not, yeah. would never wish to be, and I'm happy with a watch that keeps approximate time. No, I'd, I'd be five seconds late to all my appointments. How, how yes. would anyone talk to me? Or indeed five <laughs> seconds early. There are all these amazing stories of, of everything from gravitational waves to cannons and guns to other other things we've tracked and made. And, and there's also, across the history of this development of precision, there's an interesting through line of global positioning. Because early in the book, oh. you look at John Harrison 
who developed clocks that let ships know where they were longitudinally. And then it goes all the way to the modern day where if, if our listeners probably switch apps in their phones, they can use GPS and get where they're going. The overall history of figuring that out, it's amazing that it happens with and without computers and everything else. Yes. And of course, John Harrison charged with or entered the competition, famously told in David Sobel's book called Longitude. What, what kind of competition for, for people who don't know? Well, because lots of people wanted to make a perfect clock that would keep time when it's thousands of miles away across the sea in brutal weather, perhaps, extraordinary tropical climate, seas, you know, clocks tend to like sort of ticking away on the mantel shelf, not in us. And so he had to devise a lot of competition from others that wanted to make the perfect chronometer. He won the prize, and you can see them all there in uh, the Royal Maritime Museum in Greenwich in uh, eastern London, what's called H4, I think it is, which is not a great big thing. It looks like a gigantic pocket watch. That would keep time to within a very, very few seconds a month and therefore allowed a mariner, even though he's thousands of miles away from Greenwich where the absolute standard of time is kept, he can then calculate where the prime meridian yeah. Move fast um, forward to where we are on the planet. That requires incredibly precise timekeeping up in the satellites, this net of 32 satellites the American government organized uh, from a base near Colorado Springs called Shriver Air Force Base. And that building, one of the most secure buildings in the world, is where this big global positioning system is managed from. And if can you imagine the complications now if that went offline. I would give up you, on you, returning to where, where I live in Los Angeles. Where, I would exactly. just make camp, you, you know. You'd never exactly. Uh, that's it. And <laughs> ships would crash into each other and as happened at the beginning of Davis O'Bell's book, this extraordinary story of Admiral, wonderful name, Sir Cloudsley Shovel. Oh, didn't know the, uh, good the name. longitude of his ship and drove his entire fleet into a bunch of rocks off Cornwall, killing 2,000 people. So it yeah, could be very serious. We need to know where we are. And it's it's just so incredible that this man, John Harrison, developing a clock, and then by having a timepiece, they could figure out their longitude. Before the 1750s, when he did that, ships only knew their latitude, I suppose. Yeah, they didn't know the other. Exactly they right. just didn't longitude know. Longitude was a major problem. Yeah. Because longitude depends on time. Time is determined. Longitude is, is the world being... You know, these longitudinal lines, each one 15 degrees, one hour ahead of or behind the prime meridian yeah, Greenwich. The, the but vertical if you don't lines, know so the time it is in Greenwich, then you can't know the time on your ship. You don't know the distance from where you are on the planet longitudinally. Yeah. It's just amazing to me that prior to the 1750s, ships were guessing at, at half of where they were. And then now today, I believe your book says that that GPS system, which I didn't know is so many satellites, uh, but it can figure out where we are at in the world down to the centimeter. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I was <laughs> used to be a geologist and I would position oil rigs in the North Sea to within, and this was back in the 1960s, long before GPS, could position them to within about 200 feet of where the geologists in Chicago said they should be put. Laughably inaccurate. In other words, right. not what I intended. <laughs> uh, nowadays, they can position themselves, as you say, to within centimeters. And um, yeah. 
thanks entirely to this American-run GPS, given free to the world. Everyone in the world can use it. Chinese are coming up with their own. Galileo is being produced in Europe. Britain is not allowed to be part of it after Brexit. So Britain will continue to use the American system. But uh, nonetheless, to know where we are on the surface of the planet is deemed essential. Whether it's essential to know where we are to within centimetres, I'm not sure. I think if you can get home, you don't care if you're 10 centimetres left or right when you move into your living room. At least I I hope that is true for you. And there was an amazing detail in that book, too, where apparently as the military was putting the finishing touches on GPS, you mentioned that they considered making the civilian version for the rest of us somewhat inaccurate, just because they felt we shouldn't quite know, you know, exactly where the White House is or or exactly where key things are that, that maybe we shouldn't Exactly. <laughs> and there's there's a long running dispute about that. The the inventors of, of GPS say the military always allowed everyone to have full access to it. The politicians say, well, it's not quite true. We inbuilt an error for the signal that went to civilians such that they were about a hundred meters out. Good enough for them, but to give them 100% accuracy would mean that theoretically they could direct a rocket at the Oval Office. (laughs) And it wasn't until, according to this, the political account, until the shooting down of the Korean airline by the Russians over Sakhalin Island in the 80s, I think it was, that the thought that the Korean airline's plane that was shot down had strayed away from its normal pass because it didn't have absolutely accurate GPS that um, President Clinton, I think it was, said, uh, maybe Reagan, said, no, everyone's got to have equal access to exactly the same as we in the military have. I'm still not sure that that's true, but still. And when you say other countries and places are building their own GPS-type systems, like how how political is that or, or what's the motivation to build a separate one because theoretically well we the rationale all... is that we don't want to rely on the americans and that's... we want to if you're chinese the Beidou system which is the one they're developing i think that's its name they want to sell it they want to sell receivers all around the world uh-huh. so that they the beijing has domination of where in the world we are so yes you're right it's political okay i mean i, I would think reliance on uh, america's nation of stable geniuses would be a completely solid uh, prospect but i don't know i guess they think you would think so would you not especially when you get such stable geniuses in the white house <laughs> absolutely folks that is the episode for this week my thanks to simon winchester for being extremely generous with his time i'm really grateful he came and talked to us and uh, shared so much about how everything that you're holding and wearing and in the room with came together. And in our footnotes, you will find, of course, a link to get Simon's latest book. It is called The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. And of course, other footnotes about all the different people and concepts and eras we talked about today. I especially love uh, the story of that guy, John Wilkinson, who, as Simon said, made an iron boat and an iron coffin. And I think of James Bond a lot. I think I've been saying that just about every week, but he sounds like an iron version of Goldfinger to me. And that's just very exciting. And he borderline pioneered the modern world. So how about that? Now you know, John Wilkinson. You'll also find some links in there for our upcoming live shows that I could not be more excited about. 
And I am so excited about the Cracked Podcast Tour. It is coming to Chicago, Illinois, April 11th at Lincoln Hall. Wonderful venue, named after a great guy. And we are coming to St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th of 2019 at Amsterdam Bar and Hall. Two great venues, two completely original live shows of the podcast, customized to your wonderful cities, one of which I'm pretty much from. I'm from Illinois. You guys know that? I, I think I bring it up either not often enough or all the time. I'm not really sure. Uh, but either way, I can't wait to do this trip, and I hope you'll come join us for it. Tickets are on sale now, and in these food notes that I've been talking about, please, please come see us if you possibly can. Beyond that, our theme song is Chicago Falcon by the one and only Budos Band. This episode had some very fancy engineering because I'm in Los Angeles and Simon was speaking to us from Earwolf in New York. So it was engineered by Sam Kiefer and also Dave Seidel across the country. I think that's pretty neat. And then it was also edited by Chris Souza, who spans the country with his greatness. I was going for a Paul Bunyan thing in there, but it worked in my head. I don't think it works in speech. You know what I mean? If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing engineered with extreme precision that is somehow also just mostly jokes about the NBA. I'm not complaining. I love basketball. I'm into it. But uh, mostly memes. How about that? My own Twitter account with a limited amount of basketball content is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram. I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, but still somehow that doesn't stop everyone. Not to mention you could get arrested, you could incur huge legal expenses, and you could possibly even lose your job. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.